Welcome to the Employers Legal Lounge with your host, Michael Sullivan and Associates Managing Partner, Eric DeWong. Each month, we dive deep into a specific topic to provide you with valuable insights and guidance for navigating the complex world of California employment regulations. This podcast is provided for informational purposes and does not constitute legal advice. Only your attorney, with complete knowledge of the facts and circumstances of your situation, can determine how the relevant laws apply. Now, on to the episode. Welcome, everyone, to episode two of Employers Legal Lounge, a space for employers and HR professionals, risk managers, insurance carriers, third-party administrators and brokers, and all the like, to get together and talk about the ever-changing and complex employment laws in California. I am your host, Eric Duwam, managing partner of the Employment Law Department at Michael Sullivan and Associates. If For those who don't know who I am and what I do, I have been a practicing employment law trial defense attorney for employers for over 20 years now. I won't say how many years. I don't need to age myself anymore. And uh, what we do is we defend employers in litigation, but we also provide advice and counsel for employers to make sure that they are compliant. And when a lawsuit, if it ever does happen, they've already prepared and shored up fantastic defenses. Now, um, before we get into the substance of our podcast today, I wanted to take a quick moment and say thank you to all of those out there who watched episode one. I was um, deeply surprised and grateful for all the outpouring of support and positive feedback that this made a difference and the material was very helpful. That is our goal um, for every episode going forward. So thank you so much for those who viewed episode one. Um, That's available also there for people who have not seen it yet. And um, now we will get into our material for today. For every episode, we will bring to you a special guest, a leader in the industry, and today is no exception. Today, our special guest is Christine Rodman, CEO at Lynx HR Consulting, and also the incoming state council uh, council director for SHRM. So Christine, welcome. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you, and what and um and thank you again for being part of this. Uh, we've worked together before and done conferences together before and speaking engagements, and you're always a joy to have around. Um, one of the things that we also do, as uh, I've told you, Christine, is every uh, episode uh, we try and create a lounge-like atmosphere where people can just. Um, settle in, talk about these sometimes stressful um, issues and uh, managing these laws. So we do that where everybody grabs their favorite beverage, tea, hot cocoa, coffee. And for those who need something a little bit stronger for talking about employment laws, um, we also uh, are a safe space for adult beverages. And uh, what I do is I ask my special guests, what is your favorite adult beverage and what are we going to drink today? And I join with you and your adult beverage um, is? Is, well, I'm drinking tonight the Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc. 
Oh, fantastic. Well, I got the note on the white wine. I have some La Crema here to toast with you. So cheers, my friend. Cheers. Cheers to you. And cheers to all of you out there drinking whatever you're drinking. And one of the other um, traditions we've already said, um, Tara Fonier, who's the president at uh, the Professionals and Human Resources Association, was our first guest. And as we discussed, we ended up creating a bit of a drinking game. Um, so drink your hot cocoa or your tea or your coffee. But if you're indulging in a, a adult beverage, you might want to be careful of just sipping when we mention this particular word, because we might mention it often. And that word is PAGA, the Private Attorney General Act. And I've already mentioned it. So PAGA, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> so I mentioned that because the, um, the first thing I wanted to chat about as we're going through, and we're going to talk about some of the questions I got from the first episode and try and answer some of those the best we can. But um, one of the things that have been going through the courts, and I get a lot of questions about on a regular basis, is the, I'll just say, Private Attorney General's Act. So we're not drinking every two seconds. Uh, and how we deal with that. For those who don't know what that is, that is a law out there that plaintiff's attorneys use to sue employers for uh, typically no fantastic reason, but it's so technical on the wage and hour issues, it's really difficult to um, fully defend them unless you are perfect in your compliance and wage and hour. Uh, Private Attorney General Act actions have started since 2004 and they are on the uprise. And uh, in the last two years, I've seen them um, probably skyrocketing and maybe half of my uh, case roster is class or PAGA. Oh, sorry about that, PAGA actions. So sorry, um, private attorney general actions. And with those, I get a lot of clients who say, hey, what do we do with these? How do we protect ourselves from these? And we know historically, and I'm sure you do this with, um, your clients as well, Chris, is uh, for class actions, we've always had the arbitration agreements, right? Um, and do you recommend those for your clients? And, you know, and I guess I should ask, what, what do you- Well, it depends, Eric. <laughs> I, it depends it, on the, the, the circumstance and the situation. Yep. Fantastic uh, legal answer. I like it. And- a common HR answer is that it, it really depends. So it depends on the size of organization. Is it appropriate? You know, in my world, we work with mid-size small business. And yeah. so oftentimes they're very fearful of an arbitration agreement or they don't understand what that would look like. So, and I understand that, you know, as the laws change, you know, some, some of the things might not necessarily apply or it, it might be a little scary for small businesses to sort of figure out if it's appropriate for them. So oftentimes, you know, I leave it to legal counsel to sort of advise on whether or not it's appropriate for an arbitration agreement or not for them. You're, um, you're, you're right on because it does um, vary on the size of the employer, especially because class actions can very often be extinguished if it's a small number of employees anyway. Um, certainly under 10, I've had them dismissed under 15 employees. I've had them dismissed under 20. But when you get into that um, area, it's an area called we, we call numerosity of how many to be appropriate for a class action. 
then we don't know what a judge is going to do if it's numerous enough, a number, uh, and by numerous enough, enough employees to be a class action. Um, for my clients, if you exceed that 20 mark, I um, typically suggest it because getting hit with a class action in and of itself is a um, incredibly expensive endeavor and not uh, insured uh, typically. So it's on the employer's dime and they last for a very long time. So the arbitration agreement has always been a good tool to get out of class actions. And then there was a period of time where we, we hoped in the last year or so that we could get out of them in private attorney general act actions as well. Unfortunately, because that issue was in front of the California Supreme Court, who of course loves employers and wants to do the best for employers, they said, no, no, uh, that is not the case. So it, you cannot get out of a representative action um, by an arbitration agreement. So that issue is still out there. Now, there's another hopeful um, case coming out there, but again, it's in front of the California Supreme Court um, on whether or not we can defend a private attorney general act case with a defense called manageability. And what manageability is, is saying to the court, hey, there are so many different issues and fact scenarios with all of these represented employees that we're going to have to have all of them testify. You might have to have these mini trials going on, and it's going to take years and years and, um, you know, court resources and company resources. And it's not what the act intended. So we've had this defense for a long time, and we have a split Court of Appeal decisions on whether or not we can do that. That's now in front of the California Supreme Court um, called Estrada. And we, they just had oral arguments last week, which I listened to. And I don't want to get people's hopes up, but listening to the oral arguments, there was, you know, one justice who was, you know, quite uh, skeptical about it, um, about using manageability, saying, hey, um, you know, there's other ways of dealing with that. And, you know, the courts are there for that system. So we shouldn't take this um, ability to argue manageability to completely defeat a private attorney general act case. But several of the just justices said, hey, this is, you know, this is what we might want to do because this is taking court resources. We'd have these mini trials. And, you know, if it's not manageable and we'd have all these mini trials and taking up these court resources, shouldn't they be individual actions and not this big group action, especially when we're talking 100, 200, 300 employees? So uh, I was um, skeptically optimistic after I heard the oral arguments and uh, we can await the decision. So I'll keep people posted on that. You have the resources on my uh, LinkedIn and Instagram and our podcast. We'll definitely have something about it when it comes out. But that's something to look at, especially if you have an existing uh, private attorney general act uh, case because it could really impact your case and the, uh, if you can potentially uh, get it dismissed. So enough about PAGA and I did that one intentionally because I was thirsty. Cheers. Cheers to everybody and um, and I, I expect that of everybody drinking hot cocoa and tea too uh, so uh, you drink with us. Um, so uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about with some of the questions we got from the last one. And I also bring it up because it's a subject that Chris, you and I 
uh, talked quite a bit about, and we did a presentation about. At, oh, rings. Yep. Rings rolling. In, yeah, <laughs> in Sherm NorCal. Uh, what was the name of that presentation again? Uh, it was the Return to Work Roulette. Return to Work Roulette. Yes, that was so apt. Uh, and when you spin the wheel, or if you're, uh, you know, comparing it to Russian roulette, that might also be the case on leaves of absence. Um, that was the big issue. And um, what's the, what is the leave of absence world like for you in your consulting? I feel like it's a gamble. Yeah. 99% of the time, you know, I have a lot of clients that are always worried about which law is triggered. And you have small businesses that they may not necessarily apply for FMLA, but they apply under CIFRA, but then they have a new employee that comes up and they're like, when do I have to accommodate somebody? And how long do I have to accommodate? And what's really a definition of what's an indefinite leave of absence? Because I understand under if it's indefinite and, and someone has no intention of coming back, there are some abilities for them to not hold that job open, but what is the threshold for that? Right. Same thing with workers comp is like, oh, well, they're Teflon. We can we cannot do anything with that employee anymore. We have to wait till they're fully released and then put them back at the job. And so there's a lot of stress around that. And what are those thresholds? And you know, someone may not necessarily qualify under the different protections in California, but yet we have to still accommodate the disability side. So uh, at what point? It's incredibly complex. Um, and I think the, the challenge for it is there's no one rule to follow because it's a strategy. It's factually dependent on um, the company, the employee, the job itself, um, the type of leave we're talking about, because um, that makes a difference. Uh, how long is too long on a leave? And is it qualify as what you mentioned as indefinite? On the indefinite, for those of you who don't know, I mean, we have obligations for, and this is one of the questions I get all the time, on indefinite, um, of course, we have to, under ADA and FEHA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Fair Employment and Housing Act, provide reasonable accommodations. Sometimes that reasonable accommodation is simply leave, even if they don't have uh, Family Medical Leave Act leave or CIFRA leave, they might they, they will have ADA and FIHA to some extent if you have five or more employees. So how long is too long? And there, of course, is not a bright line act uh, line for us in the court system. It depends on the on the job and it depends on the individual analysis every single time. But if we get the flag that this employee is never coming back, we have notes of three months, six months. They're out a year now. It, and then if we've documented well enough, we can at least tether that together to show that, hey, this person is never really going to be coming back. And we don't have to accommodate somebody who has indefinite leave. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Um, this person isn't just convalescing. This person will not be able to return. So it's a, um, a hard threshold to me. I'm, I, I usually recommend that clients do that in hand with counsel because it is so tricky. Um, and to make sure um, that they are relying on their resources, their HR consulting firms for the documentation before that, as they are teeing it up for that discharge. Now, um, one of the things that people have a misconception about is, hey, somebody has a worker's comp injury, 
I can't do anything with them. As you said, they're Teflon. I can't, you know, there's nothing I can do. And as you and I both know, Chris, that's not the case, right? There's, there's no like, you know, magic bubble that they're in because they're in a workers, have a workers comp injury, but employers still have that impression. Um, what is true is you can't fire somebody or discriminate against them because they filed a workers comp claim, right? That's under what we call 132A under uh, the labor code, labor code 132A. And that falls under the workers comp venue typically. Now, for those of you uh, who are like, oh, Eric, are you a workers comp attorney? Heck no, I'm not a workers comp attorney. I'll never be a workers comp attorney, but we have a fabulous, fantastic workers comp department through which I have uh, just enough knowledge to be dangerous. Um, and we work together hand in hand for these issues because they know everything about workers comp. I know everything about the employment law sector and there's areas of our specialty that meet in the middle that we need to collaborate, right? Which is kind of where I'm going with this in the uh, employer's world. And one of the things that uh, you, Chris and I um, advocated for during our SHRM presentation is, hey, employers, get your risk managers and your HR people on the same page with these um, industrial injuries. And you know how you do it, it's you know, different if you have outside HR consulting, if um, an outside risk, have them collaborate on a regular basis. If you have an in-house, same thing. Because once there is an industrial injury, there's no, well, it's in a worker's comp venue, so I'm not gonna deal with it because I'm HR. Or it's not, you know, oh, risk is saying, oh, it's now it's on HR, you know, we're done with it. We just closed out the workers' comp case. It is mm -hmm. always um, a united front. And um, unfortunately, it's always, always on HR, right? There's no uh, passive, hey, it's an industrial injury, so, you know, we don't have to deal with it. So one of the things that I um, recommend is once a month for uh, risk and HR to get together and talk about what's on the docket for the industrial injuries. So HR, you're not surprised by, you know, oh, they're coming back tomorrow. And it's been two years. Uh, so uh, everybody's scrambling to figure out, well, what do we do? And we thought this, you know, employee was never coming back. Uh, having those discussions uh, makes a difference. Uh, and to you, Chris, what is... And I mean, it's easy for me to say is what I recommend. What do you see in reality of being able to do these things and manage these with risk? So I always tell my clients to be proactive with, there's, with any workers' comp claim or any leave of absence in, in that we want to see if there's any possibility to, to potentially close the claim or resolve the claim and have it on your calendar to have a check-in with your workers' comp claims adjuster or whoever's handling the claim and figure out what the options might be to potentially close out that claim. Because I had some situations where one of my clients forgot all about someone being out on a workers' comp leave for a number of months and wasn't even on their radar. And the person had already found another job elsewhere or, or is doing other things that are, <laughs> they yeah. have no intention of coming back. And if they have no intention of coming back, then you can release that position, correct? Absolutely correct. Uh, if you know that they have no intention of coming back, if you can show that they're actually out there working and doing something else, 
Yeah, um, obviously documenting is part of it. Um, but uh, I can tell you that your scenario that you just mentioned where they've forgotten about it is incredibly common because I find that when an employer has an industrial injury and their, their carrier's dealing with it, their TPA is dealing with it, there's not always, depending on who your carrier and TPA are, a lot of communication with the employer um, on status. And I mean, that is uh, part of that is for a good reason, because as an employer, all you want to know is the status of the return to work, you know, what the restrictions are, what the return to work date is, and any accommodations that are needed, right? So you don't want to get into the details of the reports or their medical history and any of that type of stuff. Um, I, I personally tell my employer clients, stay as far away from that as possible. Um, I don't know about you, um, Chris, but that's, uh, I'm like, be careful what you ask for because there's only so much you want to know. Right. TMI. <laughs> TMI. And uh, sometimes that's hard for employers, especially when they're incensed by the claim or they feel it might not be a, a fully legitimate claim. But it is important to let go of those and let your carriers, your workers' comp defense attorney handle that. Um, a lot of times with my clients, they also use my firm for the workers' comp component. So they also have me as part of it, and I can kind of oversee a bit and make it a little bit easier. Um, it helps to have your employment lawyers and your workers' comp lawyers on the same page with each other because there's usually so much crossover. So um, to the questions that I got and why I br brought this up is, you know, one of the tips is regular meetings between risk, risk and HR. And the other is paying attention to the... Uh, the medical certifications that are coming through, especially when, tell me. I have a question though. Yes. About, so the medical certifications and yeah. so what, what was, what is your recommendation as it applies to getting a second opinion or a third opinion? So if you're concerned about the legitimacy of a claim, yeah. recourse does an employer have? So um, if you're concerned about the claim or the actual um, validity of a of medical cert. The validity of a cert. Right. And that comes up a lot, uh, 100%. Uh, and it usually comes up also when we get the conflicting medical reports that you and I uh, talked about with uh, at the conference. That comes up a lot in the workers' comp scenario where you, and this is kind of the way it plays out, as you know, they have their industrial injury and in workers' comp venues, they have their AMEs, QMEs, LMNOPs, all these medical reports that come out. And uh, and that's what the carrier relies on. That's what the workers' comp defense attorney relies on in evaluating. And the employer uh, just gets the restrictions. So the example would be, hey, you know, we got this restriction uh, for an industrial injury and hey, this person can, it says never permanent restriction can never get out of bed again, right? And lo and behold, one of the essential functions of the job they have is to eventually get out of bed. So, you know, we know they can't get out of bed again. And then the claim closes, it settles, and the employer thinks, oh, this person's gone, right? They're still in the books, but their just assumption is they're gone because they can never get out of bed again. And now they have payment on their workers' comp claim. A few months later, employee runs in, uh, not walks and shows this new note um, and says, this is from my primary care physician. And it says, return to work, no restrictions. It's a miracle. And uh, I want to I want to work again uh, because I've already cashed that workers comp check and I'm ready to go. 
So the employer is stuck with, uh, wait a second, three months ago, you could never get out of bed. And now you are, you know, skydiving. So which one of these is, is it? So the first thing you do with that is you have to have the interactive process. Workers comp can deal with these in a different way, but as employers, you are obligated to take these two notes and sit down with them and say, hey, we have these two notes, what's going on? Now, when you have this more recent note that says can return to work, no restrictions, typically you're going to have to follow that. Um, because if you say, I'm not gonna believe your note, I believe the one three months ago, and you don't let them work, what are you gonna get hit with? Discrimination claim, right? So it's it, they're gonna say, oh, this is disability discrimination, this is retaliation. Um, they have a note that says I can work, they refuse to believe the doctor. They think they're a doctor and they won't let me work. So typically you're going to want to allow it, even though I understand the fear of, hey, they're gonna hurt themselves again. You know, um, you know what's going on? So to your question, Chris, of what can you do when they come back to work and you're letting them you know, work, if you can objectively see that they're not able to climb that ladder or bend and stoop or you know, push that trolley, whatever it might be, um, and you have more than one pe person seeing it, you can start doing the trigger for what we call a fitness for duty exam, a third party exam. But there's a lot of bells and whistles that go into that. And as you know, I am uh, uh, very hesitant for employers to get excited about it. So if you're in that scenario about trusting a medical note, um, don't jump to this fitness for duty where you send them to your own doctor at your cost because there are medical privacy issues at stake. So um, you can get to that threshold, but with some work and with some documentation, with some direct observation, and I would do it in hand with your HR consultant and your employment lawyer um, before you send them to a fitness for duty. Now, typically you're gonna accept on its face medical notes. Even if you distrust them, I don't believe that doctor, that doctor will sign anything. And yeah, you know, a lot of those doctors will sign anything. So um, what you can do, is if it's a, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, Chris, a vague note, you know, something that says, can take many breaks um, or can't deal with stress, uh, you know, doesn't want to work with their supervisor. Yeah, and these are notes we see, right? Um, I'm sure you've seen those. Yes, so. I've, yeah, I've definitely seen notes to where someone has to take a break every 20 minutes. Yeah, I think that was the most extreme that I've seen in recent time is that every 20 minutes they had to take a five minute break. Yeah. And, and then we get into an evaluation. Is that reasonable? And then you have to get into what what is the job? What is the requirements? You know, is this really an undue hardship? Right. Um, and, you know, with those with something like that, you have to get into the analysis. If it's something like um, can't deal with stress, I mean, you know, good luck with that. What job is, are you? at that you think you can have a job with no stress because I want that job, um, that's not a reasonable accommodation. So you push the note back is my um, uh, what I'm getting at and say, hey, this I, we don't know what this means. So um, because every job is stressful. So what is what exactly do you need? And then what I do is I have a accurate, up to date job description that I give to the employee and say, take this to your medical provider and they can go through all of your essential functions and say what you can and you can't do and for how long and what accommodations you need. So um, you kind of pigeonhole them. Now, 
I'm making this sound simpler than it is. I understand these. Um, every time I see these, there's a little bit of a different strategy, but there are solutions. They're not usually instantaneous solutions, um, but they are there. Um, and it gets back to, circles back to HR kind of always having a finger on the pulse of these things mm -hmm. and uh, not waiting until the claim resolves. So, um, and, and I can say that specifically, my biggest recommendation is deal with these things before the workers' comp plan closes, because the answers you're going to get from the employee are going to differ between the time of there's still an open case where they haven't settled it, and if it's already settled and they've cashed the check of mm -hmm. uh, their conditions. So um, generally, this is kind of a rule of thumb thing that I like is if HR gets a note that has a permanent restriction that says, you know, the example, we'll just go back to it, can never get out of bed again, permanent restriction, um, always bedridden, and HR gets that. They should run, not walk to the interactive meeting, right? And uh, don't wait a week or two weeks or until the claim resolves um, if, it's, if it's open, and sit with the employee. And all the interactive process means is communicate, right? You talk with them and say, hey, I, you know, we have this permanent restriction um, and it says you can't get out of bed again. We can see us zooming from bed and uh, right. So you can't uh, get up again. And they're like, oh yeah, it's terrible. It's awful. Um, can't get out of bed again. Okay. So you can't do this job. You're, you know, for example, a laborer, which requires you eventually to get out of bed and, you know, climb the ladder or pick up 25 pounds, whatever it might be. So you agree you can't do that? Nope, can't do that. Uh, so, okay. Um, and then the employer then next says, hey, we've looked in the organization for all of the jobs that you're qualified for. And unfortunately and surprisingly, there are no jobs that you can do from bed. Um, so uh, because of that, then we probably are going to have to separate because there's no jobs for you that you can ever do because of permanent restrictions. And, uh, and then you send them on your way. Eric, you can't do that, right? That's a, they have a workers' comp claim open. Uh, that's terrible. No, that's not the case. Um, you can still um, discipline people. They can still give you know, performance evaluations. You can still terminate people who are unable to perform their essential functions of a job on a permanent basis. Um, so doing it when it's happening, I think, is absolutely key. Um, sorry, I got on my soapbox. You know how I feel about these things. So <laughs> <laughs> Chris is just like going... Eric, get, get it off your That's chest. Okay. That's okay. That's <laughs> okay. But you know, one thing though that is really difficult to document or at least to substantiate is when someone has a serious mental health concern or yes. something where we can't actually physically see it. Yep. You know, they don't have a broken arm or it's not like they had surgery, but they're dealing with stress because you brought up the stress issue. Yes. So what's the threshold then? You know, someone is dealing with some kind of maybe an anxiety or depression and they continue to have, they're not able to come back to work because right. they don't feel safe or whatever reason. And they have a doctor's note. What's the threshold? You, you know, you, it's not like I feel comfortable asking for a second opinion with when it, when it's a mental health issue. Do you have any recommendations around that? Yeah. This is one of the stickier areas, of course. And more so because employers are reluctant to ask for the medical note, mm -hmm. right? And what I see most 
are employers jumping the gun, assuming that there is a medical condition or a disability that they can't work. Um, and then they start saying, oh, you're stressed. So, you know, we're going to, you know, you should take some time off. Right. Um, oh, you seem anxious. Those types of things. And it's uh, and everybody who's seen me talk before knows no good deed. Goes unpunished. unpunished. <laughs> and it is the, the thing that uh, rings true all the time. I understand it comes from a good place and we want our workplace healthy, but this is the legal problem. This is coming from a 20 plus year cynical defense attorney. When you step in that space of saying, oh, you know, I think there's something wrong. You don't seem right. You seem stressed. Um, and you start suggesting these uh, accommodations. You have now, even if they don't have an actual condition or disability, treated them, regarded them as disabled, which carries all the bells and whistles and damages and attorney's fees and punitive damages and front pay, back pay, side pay, all the things that happen, even if they actually had a disability because the employer has treated them as disabled. So to answer your question, of how, what's the threshold with these. Anytime somebody says, hey, I'm, uh, I'm stressed, I'm anxious, uh, I you know, need time off, you know, that's fine. So the first thing you go to is, you know, are they using their existing PTO or available you know, sick days? Um, and everybody knows we have now five sick days that they can use. And uh, once those have exceeded and it still continues, then you suggest, hey, um, that's fine, but we do need a medical certification, right? And this is a kind of thing that would qualify for FMLA CIFRA, the 12 weeks of unpaid leave. So if they have suggested that and they're outside their normal five days of sick days, I would start FMLA CIFRA running, say we need a medical certification and get that medical certification for them off as if it was even a physical injury. So really treating it the same. And I know it's uh, it, it's more challenging and it, you know, definitely hits our empathy bones in a different way. Um, but treating it the same is really important. Requiring the medical certifications, don't allow accommodations without the medical certs or an appropriate medical cert. Um, because if you start accommodating without it, you're going to lose the defense that, Hey, they weren't disabled in the first place because you've treated them as disabled. So if you want to shore up these potential later defenses of, well, it wasn't a disability, which I tell my clients, don't get into the weeds of whether it is or is not a disability. Let the medical notes dictate. We're not doctors. If you are a doctor, and I do have doctors that are clients, take that doctor mind out and you are not a doctor for your employees. Let their medical certifications run it. You don't get to second guess them either. Um, and you follow them as you go through and it becomes tricky if you, they're out of the FMLA CIFRA, then you still get into ADA and FIHA potential leave as well, but still require the ongoing medical certs as you go. This is the other pro problem with mental health care is I find employees always tend to overshare with their supervisors, but particularly in this, they start talking about what meds they're taking and all the things that they're doing, right? You're shaking your head as like, as you heard this, as this... Yeah. Yeah. I hear it often. And because they want, we become their therapist, we become their advocate and yeah. their ally and they want to share. And I don't want, I don't want to know, but I don't also want to be, I want to be empathetic as well and compassionate. Yeah. So HR people, we care. 
and yeah. we want to do the right thing. So it's hard because we don't want to get caught up in the middle of it, but we also need to just understand, is this really, does this trigger a true disability so we can put them out on leave or is it, is it not? So that that's what I struggle with is that threshold of like, what's that line? And I know it's all gray. It, it is, um, you are not alone in that struggle. It is a hard line to walk. So I am actually very stringent with my clients on it is if an employee starts talking about their medical conditions or their medications and all of those things, you have to put your HR manager hat on. And there's all, way, all sorts of ways of doing it and saying, hey, you know, I... It's uh, because I'm HR, because I'm your manager, because I'm your supervisor, because you're, I'm your employer. In, um, and I know we also have great relationship. I want to hear this, but I can't disassociate myself from that role. And because of that, um, I, I, I don't want to, and I don't want you to share the details of what medications you are. We don't want to know that. We're not entitled to know that. And um, But what I can tell you is if anything is impacting your ability to do your job. That's something you tell me and we can get a medical cert just to tell me what you need. Um, I don't wanna know the actual diagnoses or, um, or meds or anything like that. And stopping them in real time is hard, um, but it is the right legal thing to do um, and doing it in a nice way. Because the way I see it when I'm litigating is all of this is well-intentioned but then I get this stream of emails that where somebody lists all of their medications that don't really ask for an accommodation, but kind of maybe there's a line there. And in them, they'll argue, well, I told them about all these things. I told them that I was struggling and, you know, they never suggested an accommodation and uh, all of those types of things. And there's, it, there's an email chain with it. And when I talked to the supervisors, like, I didn't know how to stop them right from, you know, they didn't ask for anything, but I didn't know how to stop them. The word vomit of, you know, telling them everything about their lives, you know, their house issues, their family issues, their divorce issues, their medications. That's the stuff that happens. So it's um, definitely a hard line, but I do see it problematic when I'm litigating them. If we don't draw the line. Um, I know that's the ever the cynic and everybody, you know, take what I say with you know, the appropriate grain of salt. Remember, I'm coming from a defense perspective. And that's why I have people like Chris to balance me out with uh, with the other side and somewhere we meet in the middle of getting it right. But it's always a challenge. It's always a strategy. Um, so let's see. I think we talked about the workers' comp employment law crossover from the questions. The one other question I had, I just want to check on my our time to make sure... Um, I'll just hit it quickly because we actually have gone through a lot. I try and keep everything to about 45 minutes because I want to be um, cognizant of people's time. And it flies by when I'm with you, Chris. So it has already flown by. We only have about seven or eight minutes left. So um, one of the things that came up was also a case called Reigns, which I uh, have been on the speaking circuit about with Chris, with Tara also at Pyra, which is simply a new law that extends the Fair Employment and Housing Act definition of employer beyond just regular employers. It also now extends to all those who, who perform acts for employers that um, an employer would normally do. For example, HR consulting, third-party administrators, anybody who does a function 
um, like an employer. In the case of Reigns, it was HealthWorks Concentra that was doing uh, uh, med evals for conditional job offers. So the important thing to know with that is if you're in that category of a third party, um, to keep that in mind that you are now potentially not just an employer for your employees directly, but also potentially for those that you are serving for your clients. Um, and how you navigate that, um, I typically recommend in the contracts that you have between clients. I also in the same, you know, goes to employers when you have third parties um, of understanding where you both lie. And if this does come up, you know, who's responsible and who's footing the bill and who has the insurance and all of those types of things. It's really complicated. There's a lot of nuance there that's not decided yet in the law. Um, so because it's new, it's something just to keep an eye on. Um, how, what are you doing with that? Um, so since our, our last conversation on this, I have updated all of my client contracts to have a hold harmless indemnity agreement and an, a re reduction in liability. So I cap out and I don't even know if it's going to be enforceable and maybe you might be able to chime in on that, but limit liability as well as holding harmless. However, I'm curious because some clients want both parties. So they want to indemnify themselves. So they, they, they want to mutual say, yeah. mm -hmm. hold harmless. So how does that work in this equation? Yeah. So if it's a mutual, then it kind of cancels each other out, doesn't it? Right. Uh, so <laughs> it, it depends on who has the, um, the hold harmless agreement in place. And if it's one person, that's the person who's going to get indemnified and defended um, mm -hmm. in that action. So it's really going to be um, contracts hold as they are. I mean, typically they're in enforceable as they are between parties because you're negotiating them. So it's going to be about how that's negotiated, you know, with an understanding of what the risks and exposures are and uh, what the final language is. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's both tricky for third parties and it's going to be tricky for employers um, as well. But um, it has never been anticipated for third parties to now be an employer for, you know, organizations, employees that they've never employed. They never given a wage statement to. They've never signed their employee handbook. Nothing. And all of a sudden, California Supreme Court, the gift that keeps on giving, does that. So um, uh, if there's changes in that developments, it's one of those on my uh, hot list that I will always update on our podcasts and keep people apprised of. Um, but right now it's kind of a TBD. It's, it's, it's a little, it's a little unsettling. I have to be it, honest. I don't, I don't blame you. So, I, you're not alone. Yeah. And it also sort of changes the scope of what I do. And sometimes I won't get involved with certain situations with a client simply because if I don't already have that indemnity, indemnity agreement that I'm not going to necessarily get involved with a termination right. or do something that could potentially be high risk for for your your firm. My organization right so it, it's it's a little uncomfortable right now but but i and as long as the hold harmless works then you know i'll continue what i'm doing yes <laughs> it, it, it generally would if it's not a mutual so yes um so uh that's a good way to go now on to just one of the things i really wanted to touch on before we end the podcast is you know as you see my my holiday tree in the back and stuff like that. It's a season for all things, Thanksgiving, uh, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah, all the things uh, are, are coming up. 
And it's also the season for compliance audits. So uh, compliant, but what I mean by compliance audits is this is the time where employers start looking at their handbooks, their onboarding, their job descriptions, their um, typekeeping policies, looking at the new legislation. We talked about a lot of new legislation on episode one and making sure they are compliant. I can tell you, for me, there is an onslaught of that right now. Um, almost all of my clients are doing it. And so we were quite busy trying to get everybody up to speed because the goal is always to roll it out the beginning of the year, right? That's when employees expect it. That's when it, you know, raises the least concerns because almost every organization rolls out new stuff, new policies, new handbooks, new arbitration agreements at the beginning of the year. So everybody's now in a rush, right? What does it look like on your end for that? <laughs> Yeah. Well, we actually okay. do update our clients. So once the governor signs all the new laws, we do reach out to our client base and say, hey, what do you want to do? Here's all the changes, you know, with sick leave come January, the reproductive loss leave, yeah. any changes. If they're in the fast food industry, we talk about minimum wage. We talk about minimum wage just for California. Sure. Are your exempt employees paid two times the California minimum wage. So we go through this sort of checklist to make sure. And if not, if they're not in compliance, do you want to update your policies now? Because this is the time to do so for a January 1 effective date. We often have the conversations early on, but sometimes they're not ready. And so we, but we tell them that they still have to comply and they need to make sure that they're following these policies and affording these benefits, especially the new sick leave. Sure. Yeah, especially the new sick leave, that, exactly, because I, I find a lot of employers aren't aware of it. And these new, um, the new legislation, like the reproductive leave, all of those types of things, they kind of slip in. And then mm -hmm. employers don't realize it for a couple of years later, and they don't realize that there was a new law. And, you know, they wait every two or three years to update their handbook. And lo and behold, you know, I get a handbook from 2019. Um, and, you know, they haven't realized they've been out of compliance all this time, which is a huge risk, which hits all of the you know, um, wage and hour issues, especially. So my big recommendation out there is if you have employment law counsel that you work with, if you have HR consulting you work with on compliance audits, which is kind of doing a health check for the year, especially 2023 is a good year to do it because so much has changed. If you haven't done that in the last two years, please do it for your organization. Um, I, I, I hate to see when clients come to me with these class and private attorney general actions, um, and they haven't um, realized what they um, have been dealing with for years. And now they have this piled up after a long period of time. So these compliance audits are really important. We highly suggest them and reach out to your employment counsel. If you don't have employment counsel, uh, Michael Sutherland Associates obviously does these as well. Um, and Lynx does these as well. Um, but get to your great resources to help you um, with it. And that is my note for uh, for November, at least. I'm sure there'll be more for December. And I wanted to close this um, first by saying Paga and <laughs> to you. And, <laughs> and to all of you, um, thank you for, for listening. And um, Chris, I, am, I feel so lucky to have you. Um, on with us. And I'm so grateful for you. I love speaking with you. I love our conferences together. Um, and, uh, and before we go, we have something potentially coming up 
you might want to mention for oh, sure? Yes. yes. So for CalSherm, we have our annual conference and it's our HR and legislative conference in this. It's always in the spring at, in Sacramento, California, and it's based around advocacy. We have a learning track and we have capital visits where we can actually talk with lawmakers and try to make change and elevate our <laughs> position yeah. as business owners, HR professionals to help lawmakers understand the impact of some of these laws. And so that's coming up this April from it's April 17th to the 19th this year. And, and I will be there with you either. Yes, I will be there with um, you. And I expect probably speaking and uh, maybe even speaking about something we've talked about today. Who knows? Uh, so um, I look forward to that and I hope we get to see each other well before that, um, Chris, to everybody out there. Thank you so much again for uh, joining us at the Employers Legal Lounge. And we look forward to seeing you and uh, and you joining us in December. Take care. Cheers, Chris. Take Thank care. you. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Employers Legal Lounge podcast presented by Michael Sullivan and Associates. Remember to subscribe on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. We release new content every month, ensuring you stay informed about the latest developments in California employment law. If you have any questions, topic suggestions, or would like to be a guest on our show, don't hesitate to reach out to us at msa.news forward slash podcast. We'll see you next month with another episode of Employers Legal Lounge.